well, well, it's another, and the first of the year, it's another little podcast from your friends at Books of the Year. Hello, Matt. Yes, here I am. Um, uh, what, a, what a wonderful year 2020 was. I think we can all agree. Fabulous times had by all there. Yes. And here is 2021. We're uh, very happy to get us started, I think. Yes, it's already feeling exactly the same as 2020. <laughs> don't think anything has don't think anything has changed. We've just been here like forever. Uh, anyway. We have, and and we should we should also mention our new um, our new uh, fabulous sponsors or, or suppliers rather uh, who've joined in the Books of the Year podcast. Obviously, the uh, the part of of uh, chocolate brownie provider has already been taken. Love but gin provider, gin provider has has and Chesford Garden Gin Company have stepped up with their handcrafted dry gin by sending us bottles of gin. That's how they managed to to secure their place as as official supplier to Books of the Year podcast. And they sent uh, the what what kind of gin did they send me? Tea Garden Gin, which I had with a segment of tangerine. Uh, with my wife uh, over the weekend, and very Bloody nice. Oh, gonna Graham, check you out. You with look a at what? me. With a slice of what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've never had gin with with tangerine before, and and it's, it's worth saying that my wife was somewhat sceptical about uh, us putting segments of tangerine into our gin. Um, but but that's what the serving suggestion that came with the bottle said: is you put in a little bit of ice, a big dollop of gin, and yes. uh, some decent some decent tonic, obviously, um, and uh, and yes, and and a, and a segment of tangerine. It was really nice. And if and if you I mean, want to be uh, an official supplier to the Books of the Year podcast, then just you know send us your stuff. And uh, or, yeah, we'll be very happy. Or you could to just give you a sponsor us properly and do a decent ad, you know, <laughs> as opposed to us just grubbing around, <laughs> demeaning ourselves, mentioning <laughs> stuff. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, that's my idea. That's, yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. So let me ask you, Matt, have you got any plans for this year? <laughs> Well, let's see. You, let's see what the year you, holds, shall we? Have you? Have you? Have you? Have you? What, what plans have you got? What can I tell? Well, what can you tell us, Simon? There's the, I'm sure there's. I don't know. I was asking you about me, your plans for oh, the year. Uh, my plans for the year. Oh, we're going to see what. Yeah, plans for the year 2021. I think is going to be. I'm already predicting this is going to be a great year. And and hopefully, a, uh, news will bur me out on that in in the coming coming weeks. Uh, let's leave it as vague as Intriguing. that. Intriguing. I am intrigued. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder yeah. what's going to go mm. on there. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> we have a book to discuss. Stand by. We do. So, books of the year. It's our first book of the year, and maybe it's the greatest book. It's certainly the most topical. The book is unprecedented. Uh, it's new from John Sopel, the BBC's Washington geezer, who joins us on the line. John, hello. How are you? Simon, lovely to talk to you. Have you seen my business card with Washington geezer written on it? Because that's how I'm described now, officially. Yeah. Now, um, are you quite sure you can spend the time talking to us? Because even though we've only got you for half an hour, 40 minutes or something... Who knows what's going to happen? I have, I, I, quite seriously, I'm speaking to you uh, with the television on, on mute, uh, my phone next to me in case I'm told this has just happened, you've got to go now. 
um, because that is what it has been like these last uh, four years. Although I do reflect that today is the last full week of Donald Trump uh, in the White House. Well, I'm ju- all I'm saying is this isn't AmeriCast, so regardless of who sends you what instruction, you are required to stay <laughs> to the end of this podcast. <laughs> I think if President Trump resigns, I'm not staying to the end of this podcast. Okay. Simon, you mean a lot to me. I've, we've yes. known each other a long time. <laughs> I love you very dearly. Yes. However, <laughs> but, 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 dot, 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 dot. Okay, fair enough. We'll let you go as long as you give us an immediate kind of voice piece, 30 seconds, <laughs> yes, uh, on yes, the Trump, Trump presidency. So uh, before we talk about your book, can I? did you get to see the Spurs match against Marine in oh, the unbelievable. FA Cup? Yeah, it was fabulous, wasn't it? I mean, obviously for the first 20 minutes, I didn't think it was fabulous. And when Joe Hart watched the ball hit the bar and just kind of, oh, it's hit the bar. Uh, I did kind of think, oh, no, please let it not be one of those days. Um, but then it got great. And it was just such a fabulous story. It's a kind of, it's a classic English movie, isn't it? The sort of the giant killers, the Goliath go to this, you know, place near Liverpool. And I, I loved, I loved the numbers on the fencing so that when the ball went over, you knew that you had to knock at number 33 to get the ball back because on the fence it would say what number house each was. It was just wonderful. You were right with this, Matt, because there was a picture. Jürgen Klopp was there. I think there was a cardboard cutout of Jürgen <laughs> It was. I know. Uh, I was about to say Bobby Firmino, last-minute header, and then and then thought better of it. Um, but, uh, yes, no, I did watch it. I thought it was an enormous fun, like, like both of you. It's just, it's just a great story in the FA Cup when you get games like that. Also, anyway, though, didn't yes. you feel old? When a sixteen-year-old kid, he was a child. He was a child. A goal. Child. I know. You know. You just think that he can't be that young. He cannot be that young. He can't have been born in two thousand and four and be playing for Tottenham. Anyway, the reason that John Sopel is on uh, the Books of the Year podcast is that Unprecedented is a new book uh, from John. Uh, This is kind of like a diary. Just explain what you've done here, John. This is like a diary of the last kind of incredible year, basically. Yeah, it is a di- we decided it would be a kind of a fun to write an election diary on the grounds that you never know what's going to happen with Donald Trump and the twists and turns. And because American elections go on so long, I mean, Donald Trump launched his 2020 bid in the middle of 2019, you know, months and months to go before the election was his first event. And so I've been keeping a diary since then. It ended up, if we'd have published the whole diary, it would have probably been about 200,000 words because so much has, so much happens and has happened. Um, and, you know, the diary it also shows my prescience where early in January and early February, I'm saying that Joe Biden is the most hopeless candidate I've ever seen. There is no possible way that he can become president. Uh, you know, so it, it, you really get to see the insights of John Sopel and the genius of the man, actually, uh, as he calls everything wrong. But, you know, who would have thought we would end up with a global pandemic in the midst of the election? The worst race riot since 1968, the biggest economic collapse since 1929. Um And yet all this happened during the course of a tumultuous year, which involved impeachment and everything else. It's worth, it is worth saying, obviously, we'll forgive you for not seeing the pandemic coming, but it is just worth underlining, as you say in the book, that Biden came fourth in Iowa. He came fifth in New Hampshire. um, And now he's going to be president. Yeah. And there is a congressman, Clyburn, in South Carolina, 
who South Carolina was going to be the last stand and it all looked like it was going to go down in flames. And Clyburn managed to get the black vote out for Joe Biden and it turned everything around. It really did. His campaign, his candidacy was going nowhere. And although he had the money and all the big name backers, just remember, cast your mind back four years when Donald Trump thought, everyone thought he could go nowhere. And it was going to be Jeb Bush who was going to be the unstoppable Republican candidate. So, you know, money and name recognition doesn't buy you a nomination. But what happened in South Carolina turned it all round. And actually, at the end of the book, I've been reading the... um, Obama book, A Promised Land. And there's a very interesting passage where he says, you know, the moment doesn't pick, you you don't pick the moment to run, the moment picks you. And I did think at the end, actually, only Biden could have pulled this off. Only Biden could have taken on Trump because Trump is such a formidable, for good and for bad, uh, operator, that Biden's steadiness, Biden's experience, Biden's moderation, Biden's ability to appeal to disaffected Republicans at the same time as appealing to idealistic Democrats. Uh, His choice of vice president was probably helpful. All those things. I don't think any of of the other candidates, Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, go on and on or through the list of people, could have possibly done it. Only Biden had a chance. And that was why Trump knew that he had to try and stop Biden somehow. And that's what led to his first impeachment, was the whole operation in the Ukraine to f- dig dirt on uh, his son, Hunter Biden, and whether Joe Biden had been a beneficiary of that. John, you, you've mentioned the, the the diary format of the book, which I, I, I think works really well. And um, I, I, there are so many times in the book where it must have been so tempting to completely rewrite what you'd said, and, and you've sort of joked about the the um, about Biden looking like he's completely toast, as he as indeed everyone thought he was early early on in the primaries. But also, it's when COVID first appears, and it doesn't appear to be a big deal. I'm sure we'll be able to get through it, and obviously, it turns into this global pandemic. And then, you know, when um, the question is put to Trump um, very early on in the in the campaign of will you accept the results on election night, and no one could have foreseen how big a deal it would be that he he continued to say for so long well we'll see whether i'll accept the result because which uh, effectively the the implication being we'll accept the result if i win if i don't exactly. then we'll see what happens and that's that's what's led us to, to where we are right now so it became clear to me that donald trump only could envisage two outcomes of the presidential election one is he wins. The other is there's fraud. And he was setting the fraud narrative months before a vote had been cast because he knew that posed a great danger to him because people voting by post would more likely be uh, Democrats, whereas Republicans tend to go out on the day. Um, And he kept on planting the idea that there was going to be massive fraud, even though, of course, Donald Trump registered to vote by mail as well. Uh, as did Melania Trump. Um, And you could argue that there just wasn't enough pushback. And maybe the reason we are where we are now, and we saw the events of what unfolded at the Capitol, was that people indulged Donald Trump. People knew things that he was saying were untrue, but let him get away with it because it was too much hassle. And look, everything's going to be okay in the end. We'll all be fine. Don't you worry. 
you know, when push comes to shove, he'll accept the result and uh, democracy will move on. And it very nearly didn't. And you can argue that the main event was what happened last Wednesday. Actually, I think last Wednesday was overwhelmingly a security failure of policing. um, And that could have been stopped. But it took a few people to stand up and say, I will not overturn, I've counted the numbers, and Joe Biden won. And there were people being pressured, a handful of people being pressured to, to say, no, no, Donald Trump won. And these people stood firm. Arguably, they have saved American democracy. And that shows the fragility. It doesn't show how sturdy US democracy it is. It shows how fragile it is. There are, there are so many... Uh, questions which come out of that answer, John. Can I just ask you uh, specifically, um, just spooling back into the pandemic, just just briefly before we come on to the events of uh, of last week, w- one of the issues that I think people will go into your book to try and discover, which is baffling to so many people, is how did the wearing of masks come to be a political act? that if you wore it, it was a political statement. If you didn't wear one, it was a political statement. It seems utterly baffling when you go back and you look at your notes and you go back and look at these pages. What does your book tell us? It tells you that at the start, Donald Trump, uh, the pandemic upended his election plans. His election plan was to go to the country on a very strong economy and said, look what I've done. Look at the state of the stock market. Look at the reduced taxes that you're paying vote for me for a second term. And I think had the pandemic not come along, he would have won that election very easily. So that was, he was upended by that. Then the pandemic comes along and he has Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks and others saying, you've got to deal with this. You may have to close the US economy. You've got to, people have got to take precautions. And he went along initially, but then the people on on the phone to him in his ear were big business saying, you can't, you, we can't do this. We've got to reopen the economy. And then they came to the issue of wearing masks. And Donald Trump saw that some of his base didn't want to wear masks. And I think this was the greatest single failure of leadership by Donald Trump, that he always wants to indulge his base. He never wants to say to the base, you're wrong. He never wants to say to the base, guys, no, now is not the time for mass demonstrations outside the Michigan State House. This is the time for us to keep social distancing and to wear masks and to reduce the risk. And he didn't do it. And so there was a news conference where someone is wearing a mask and asks Donald Trump a question. And Trump says, take the mask off. I can't hear you. He said, no, I'd rather keep the mask on. Oh, so you want to be politically correct, do you? That was Donald Trump's demeanor because he knew that played well with his base. And so it reaches the stage where I am on the the mall last week with the demonstrations. There's a guy dressed as Uncle Sam. It's a good picture. I want to film it. And he says, take off that mask. It's offending me. Get that mask off now. America, the land of the free, I'm offending someone by wearing a mask. So I said to him, no, I, look, you know, my free will. I, res- I respect, although I don't disagree with your libertarian right not to wear a mask, but respect my right to wear one. And it has become so toxic. And everything becomes political in Trump's America. And that is why you have a country that is uniquely divided. I know Britain was in a, you know, pretty divided state over Brexit, for and against. 
But America is divided over everything, even the simple act of wearing a face mask. I, I, I want to expand on that, um, the, the, the point about wearing masks, um, John. And as Simon's already said, let's let's dig into what happened last Wednesday. What I was struck by, and I, I, I can't have been alone as I was watching those um, pictures coming out of Capitol Hill, was the number of people not wearing a mask. And let's put aside the fact that we're in the middle of a global pandemic and it's an airborne virus and, you know, wearing a mask is probably a good idea. They were committing a criminal act and filming themselves doing it, which I, I, can't, I cannot think of any time where that number of people have, commi- have happily committed a criminal act and, yes, here's pictures of me doing it. Here's, here's picture, putting it up on my social media feed. Though we're, we're now seeing arrest after arrest after arrest. But it, it was astonishing, and it struck me that these people didn't think what they were doing was a crime. They thought, in fact, they were doing the right thing. It, it is absolutely astonishing. In, a, in four years where we every time have said, well, this is unprecedented, as, 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 as your book alludes to, this has never happened before, the events of Wednesday truly knocked us off our feet. I would put it slightly differently. I think the people on Wednesday thought they were doing Donald Trump's bidding. They were doing what Donald Trump had told them to do. Donald Trump had stood at the ellipse at the at the back end, the southern end of the White House, uh, on the kind of park that leads down to the Washington Monument, and told them, you need to be strong. You need, there's no room for weakness. This is the fight of our lives. We've got to go and march on Congress. And they did. And they thought that they, and initially, they, you know, they were there, and Donald Trump made a statement that evening when he told them to go home. But he said, we love you. You're very special people. These very special people had killed a policeman, injured 60, vandalized the, 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 the most sacred heart of American democracy. And somehow they thought they were acting as patriots. And this is how, and I, I, I you know, one of the things that I've been reflecting on since that is, is that when Donald Trump came to power, like, you know, the first, my first diary entry in the book of, you know, him in Orlando about to launch his bid for 2020, the people there are joyous. They know that Donald Trump's a bit of a shuckster. They know that he's, you know, a bit naughty over taxes and, and being faithful to his wife and all the rest of it. They know all of that. And they kind of have a laugh at him, but they say, he's my guy. He's on my side. He's got my back. And I spool forward to last Wednesday when I was doing Vox Pops with these people. The humor had gone. It was, had become cult-like devotion. The only truth was the truth that came from Donald Trump's lips. Anything else when you say, well, look, 61 judges have thrown out these cases saying there was fraud. The attorney general, who was so loyal to Donald Trump, said there was no fraud. The guy in charge of election uh, security said there was no fraud. Why do you believe there's fraud? The only person who's saying there's fraud is Donald Trump. And they say, you're fake news. They are the deep state. Donald Trump is telling it to me as it is. And I was really alarmed on Wednesday. This is before the violence started, thinking this is a very different crowd. They look the same, but the mood has changed massively. Which means, Johnny, I mean, that sounds as though we're not talking politics anymore. We're talking about a cult or we're talking about religion, where rational argument is not really what, what's on the cards. Yeah, well, that, that's, what I th- that's where I think we are with millions of people. And it's not just the people who are there. There are millions of people. And I think this is, 
you know, we talk about Donald Trump's legacy of being a nation divided, you know, pandemic, economic woes. It's more than that. It's Joe Biden's inheritance. This is what Joe Biden has got to pick up the pieces on uh, on January the 20th. And I think it is like that. I think there are millions of people who, who were, I mean, look, if you compare American society to British society, I've always thought that one, you know, having been here, living here for seven years now, one of the huge differences is that in Britain, we more or less say, and you look at our coverage of the pandemic, what is the government going to do about this? What is the government going to do about that? Why is the government, you know, not doing this better? That's the, that's the tone of coverage in Britain. Whereas in America, it is what has this got to do with the government? Why is the government interfering in my life? So government scepticism was running deep anyway. For four years, Donald Trump has been denigrating the institutions of government if they ever do anything against his will. So not surprisingly, these people who are firm supporters of the president, enabled, it should be said, by an awful lot of congressmen and senators who have backed the calls saying the election was a fraud and, you know, all the rest of it. Um, so not surprisingly, the people go along with what he says and think that Donald Trump is the truth and anything else is a lie. I want to ask you, John, about what happens next, because it must be, it'll be very tempting to say that America is now going to sort of wake up from this fever dream. And we've seen, you know, uh, arrests taking place, as I mentioned before, and you know, Republicans even distancing themselves from, from Trump now. But um, I, I think I've, I've mentioned on this podcast before, there's a friend of mine who uh, in the States uh, who I've known for 30 odd years and uh, will sort of every couple of months pick up the phone to each other and have a conversation. And he is a dyed in the wool Republican and began by saying that, you know, even though he voted for Trump first time round, he didn't think he was well suited to the office, um, but he liked what he was delivering in the terms of uh, tax cuts and, and conservative judges. And when I spoke to him just after the last um, election, he was a bit downhearted because he'd voted for Trump again. However, a point he made to me was, you know, 70-odd million Americans saw what Trump was like for the first four years and said, yeah, I'll have another four years of that then, please. And that is a, that, that is a lot of... He got more votes than any other candidate has got, apart from Biden, in, in the history of, of, of American presidential elections. That's a lot of votes to decide to leave on the table if you were in a casino, to leave that 75 or 70-odd million votes, to leave those and say, well, actually, we're going to turn our backs on Trump now. Uh, that, that whole thing didn't work, and we're just going to go back to how the Republican Party was with, you know, the likes of John McCain and, 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 and um, uh, or, you know, Mitt Romney, th those, those kind of politicians. Surely they've now passed that. But if, if you were in charge of the numbers at the, in the Republican Party, you'd be saying, no, 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 we need to carry, look, there's 70-odd million people that want that kind of government. No, that, that is the kernel of the debate that is going on within the Republican Party. Are we still irrevocably yoked to Donald Trump and there is nothing we can do to move beyond him because he ca he commands such support in the country that were we to run against him as an anti-Trump kind of candidate or a post-Trump candidate, do the people either not come out and vote? Does Donald Trump put up someone who is a sympathizer to stand in that electoral district or that state uh, for the Senate? and therefore take millions of, and possibly win or take millions of votes away from the Republican. This is the existential crisis that the Republican Party now faces as it 
kind of wrestles with the post-Trump legacy. Ten days ago, if you'd asked me the question, I would have said they're not going to move away from Trump. Trump is going to have a decisive influence uh, on the Republican Party, at least until the 2024 election and possibly beyond that. I think that is now up for grabs. I think there is fury of what Donald Trump said on Wednesday before the rally, before the riots at Congress, and what he said afterwards on Wednesday evening. And you can be sure that when he gave that very odd uh, address on Thursday uh, from inside the White House, where it looked like a hostage video, it looked like the words had been written for Donald Trump. It looked like words he did not want to say. And Donald Trump, as the, you know, the hotel guy, loves to have his name on buildings. The Trump Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue, Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue, the Trump Hotel in Chicago, the Trump Golf Course at Turnbury. Well, Donald Trump's name is now on the Capitol building, and it's for all the wrong reasons. And I think that that is going to do him lasting damage. And, you know, Donald Trump posed the question himself when he said, I could go onto Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and no one would do anything. In other words, there is no line I cannot cross. I think Wednesday crossed a line for an awful lot of people. And I think it makes it very much more difficult for Donald Trump because does he either throw under the bus the people who did that and did it in his name? Or does he stand for the people who carried it out, who carried out a coup attempt? Either way, he's put himself in an uncomfortable position because two months ago, he could not bring himself to accept the result of the election, which was clear cut. And the one thing I do reflect on is, can you imagine if that election had been close? This, in his historical terms, this wasn't a close election. Joe Biden won, you know, picked up five states. He picked up Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Georgia. If it had been one state, if it had all hung on Michigan, the pressure on those people to have overturned the results, to have found the votes for Donald Trump so that he won, to disqualify other votes that may have been cast for Biden, that would have been intense. Is Trump mentally unwell? Simon, I've been asked that question a number of times, and, and I'm going to give the same answer, which is I'm not qualified to answer that. I, you know, look, you hear stories of massively erratic behavior. You hear stories of violent mood swings, that he was absolutely furious when he was taken off Twitter uh, this weekend, which is his direct voice to, you know, he looked seething when he was giving that address on Thursday evening when he was talking about the, the peaceful transfer of power, you know, and going completely against what he had said 24 hours earlier. Um, I, I, where are we now? I'll tell you where I think we are. I think no one, the cabinet has not moved against him. They have not invoked the 25th Amendment, but sort of quietly, de facto, they have. The military may have made clear to the Democrats that if we get any orders that we think are in any way untoward, we're not acting on them. There are cabinet members who've resigned. So Donald Trump at the moment gives every impression of being in office, but not in power. So the most powerful man in the world 
is unable to communicate with his base because of his removal from Facebook and Twitter. And he's in a situation where are his cabinet members going to obey direct instructions? The national security team has been more or less hollowed out. Loads of people have resigned. The transportation secretary has resigned. The education secretary has resigned. And there are other people who are going to do what they think is best for the country, I think, at this late stage, not what Donald Trump wants. And so you're left with a somewhat, you know, we're just going through the motions in the final days of this presidency. I just want to, just before Matt comes in, (laughs) you you talk about this in the book, John, but I just want to, uh, I just, I'd love to hear your thoughts on John King at CNN because I hadn't been, you know, I hadn't been watching him. I don't really watch CNN, but I did for the for this election, uh, and I found him utterly riveting. Complete, what a a consummate performer. He's like every um, political reporter and election analyst that we've got in this country, all rolled up into one. He could run the show on his own. Uh, you do talk about him in the book, but just just tell us what your thoughts are about John King at CNN. But- John King, is this, he's been around for years and years and years, and he is their numbers guy. But, you know, so just as we may have uh, Jeremy Vine doing the numbers on election night in the UK or Emily Maitlis doing the big screen, um, you know, in Britain, it's quite a small country. America is quite a big country. And yet you get the impression listening to John King that he knows the street names of the smallest towns in you know, Bucksville, Arizona, and he will zone in and say, well, what's interesting about this street is that you've got 75% Latino, 25%, but look at the way the numbers have added up. And it's just phenomenal. And the fluidity with which he does it and builds the excitement and knows exactly, he seems to know exactly what's going to happen next. And actually on the day of the election, we sort of did know when they were going to call Pennsylvania. But I was getting messages from people saying, yeah, I th- I, do you know what? I think I'd like to do a road trip to Erie, Pennsylvania. People are following the counties. Oh, my God, we're going to get the more, there's going to be a new dump from Maricopa County in Arizona or whatever it happens to be. And it was, people became obsessed by it. And, and John King, and actually, in fairness, on MSNBC, there's a guy called Steve Kornacki as well, who also did, they were just phenomenons. And they just had incredible detail at their fingertips. And it was unbelievably exciting because... If you, you know, you look at the arc of it on election night, on el- when the polls close, you've got Biden people saying, OK, we're feeling very good about this. And then you get the result of Florida and Trump has won Florida and he's way ahead in Pennsylvania. And you think, hello, we've got a repeat of 2016 where it looked like it was going to be Hillary Clinton, but suddenly it's going to be uh, Donald Trump. And so it looked like, I, you know, on when I eventually got to bed at about four in the morning, five in the morning, I thought, well, we're in for a Trump second term hold on tight. And then through the day, it looks like, well, maybe Biden's making a bit of a comeback. And then there's some more votes came in from Arizona. And you think, well, Trump's maybe he's going to win Arizona. And so it went on until eventually you get to Saturday and they finally declare that they they call Pennsylvania uh, for Biden. And that takes him over the 270 electoral college votes you need to win the presidency. And so the commentators, I mean, I've got a lot of criticism for the way CNN and MSNBC have become so, so politicised that there's kind of no attempt at impartiality. But their number crunching and their political analysis of the way the votes were unfolding was absolutely fascinating. 
if if we're talking about analysis, John, I, I think we need to uh, point out. I, I I'm and I know Simon uh, echoes this as well. We're both uh, big fans of the Americas podcast, which you've been doing with uh, Emily Maitlis and Anthony Zercher throughout the um, campaign. And I I remember listening. I and so my question is going to is actually prompted from something that uh, you mentioned on the on the podcast a while ago. It was actually I was listening to it the very day that we decided we wanted to feature your book on on this podcast. And you you sort of said to, to I think it was to Emily, can you imagine what it's going to be like when Biden's in charge and it's not as harem scurum as it's been for the last four years? And I, I, I suppose I, I I finished reading your book this morning, and I may well be misreading this, John, but it felt like it was this is the end of my North American chapter. Um, that my time as 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 a North America editor might be coming to a close because bluntly, how could it top what the last four years have been like? Am I misreading it, or or are you sort of looking to uh, perhaps start uh, getting the fat lady singing as far as your North America uh, odyssey is concerned? <laughs> That's very perceptive of you. Uh, yeah, I, I think I'm probably done. I mean, look, I've had seven years of the most unbelievable journalistic excitement and I, I, I don't want to sound glib about that because people I'm sure will listen and say well but but Donald Trump has been awful for the country or he's been a genius I, look if you're a journalist you want a story to cover and you want to be on air I have had a story to cover and I have been on air and it has been epic and it has been ridiculous at times scary at times exhilarating at times very often exhausting I was a political correspondent at Westminster in the 1990s. And it, it, it seems so pale and insipid in comparison. But, I mean, we had John Major and he had the bastards in his cabinet. And there was, you know, when John Redwood challenged for the leadership. And, and you know, and, and there was the whole kind of ratification of the Maastricht Treaty. It all seems so long ago and the exchange rate mechanism and blah, 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 blah. And... All the political journalists at Westminster who'd been there for a long time had only ever covered a conservative government because there had been a conservative government up until 1997 for 18 years. And there was this incredible sense of wave of excitement that came over the lobby journalists that I was a member of in 97 thinking, wow, Blair, we can do something new. Blair comes into government with a 180 seat odd majority and nothing happens. There are no big dramas when there are votes. The cabinet aren't fighting each other for power because Blair has got total power. And quickly, you suddenly thought, oh, my God, the circus has left town. What are we going to do? Now, okay, you know, it got got more interesting. But the initial period of the Blair Blair premiership were as dull as ditch water. And I think that we're going to go – I've just – you know, as I said, I've been reading A Promised Land by Obama – And you could see that the deliberative process of making policy that we'll formulate this, we'll announce it then, and then later that week I'll go and do something at a factory where we are trying to implement this change or whatever. And it was all politics as normal. It is going to... I'm convinced that one, hundreds of journalists are going to be made redundant in Washington by American news organisations who are not going to invest so heavily because Biden is not going to be the big news that Donald Trump has been. And two, there are going to be a lot of journalists getting methadone treatment coming off the coming off the drug high that they've been on for the past four year four years of covering Donald Trump because it has been wow dizzying. 
And yeah, I'm so I'm so for all sorts of family reasons as well. Um, I think it's time for me to come back to the UK. Well, we look forward to you being um, agriculture correspondent for the BBC <laughs> and all the. And all the, the Listen, Simon, shows. fat cattle, fat <laughs> cattle prices at market are not to be sneezed oh, at. Okay. <laughs> Uh, we've all done that at local radio. Uh, John Sopel's book is unprecedented. John, thank you very much indeed. There'll be another John Sopel podcast because he's got the Q and A uh, to do, which we'll uh, which we'll let you know about. But anyway, John, thank you very much indeed, and uh, enjoy the last few days of your incredible roller coaster ride.